0: Today's video was recorded on December 7th, 2021 and is the 10th and final lesson in our Bible study through the book of Matthew. We're up to the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus in Matthew 26 and 27. And what we're going to do is look at this from a little bit different angle and it's based off of a verse in 1 Peter. Now in that verse, Peter is explaining that Jesus in his suffering is providing an example for us. So it's based off of this verse in Peter that we're going to explore a thread that exists throughout the Bible from the very beginning all the way up to the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus that has to do with unjust suffering and betrayal. So Matthew 26 and 27 aren't merely recounting the events that happened on that Passover some 2,000 years ago, but as a narrative. It serves to show us the proper response that we should be inspired to imitate Jesus, to be Christ-like, should we encounter betrayal and unjust suffering in this world in the name of truth. And when we allow the text of Scripture to integrate within us, to inform us, it inspires us, it provides us the strength to stand firm in this world where injustice and suffering reign. So we hope you enjoy today's lesson on betrayal and unjust suffering, and we pray that this lesson will serve as a motivator to read the Scripture more deeply and allow it to inform us to be more like Jesus every day. Enjoy today's lesson. So we're at the end of Matthew. This is week 10. This will complete Matthew, and I know it seems like we went so fast through it, there's just so much stuff we couldn't cover. And of course, the end of the gospel is the death resurrection, or I'm sorry, the we'll start with the betrayal, the suffering, the death, and eventually the resurrection of Jesus. and that launches us into this new era of the Messiah as we go forward from there, uh, or an era of a new era for the kingdom. But what I want to do tonight we're going to look at the betrayal and suffering of Jesus, so basically from the Last Supper or the Passover meal, through the crucifixion and Of course, Jesus is betrayed, he suffers and he suffers even up to the point of death on a cross. We're not going to talk about so much of the details, but I want to talk big picture about the betrayal and suffering and this theme that runs through the Bible and. We'll talk also about the power of narrative, because that's how we get the information about this, this about Jesus' uh, betrayal and suffering and death, it comes to us in the form of a story. And stories are very powerful in the way that they carry the message to us, and that we integrate it, and it informs us. Inner formation is what stories do. So, nested within this narrative is the message for us to capture. And as many important aspects to Jesus' death that, uh, that there are, I just want to look at one, the
1: aspect of betrayal and suffering.
0: All right, so this is week 10. This will be the final week. And then next week and the week after, and I know it's Christmas time and everybody's busy, so we're just going to show up Tuesday at this time and show whoever's here to, to make it will will be the ones who make it. And and I again, I know everybody's busy at, around the holidays, but we'll do two weeks on the book of Judges. And it's all about governance. And it's about this slide into chaos that's happening in Israel. And you can see the cycles and there's warnings and parables and very symbolic stories that help us understand what happens to nations as they go through these processes. So that'll be on the book of Judges, but that's next week. Tonight, Matthew, week 10. Same picture as I used last week, just to point out where that, you see that mosque that's up there. This is Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Uh, This was on a Shabbat on a Friday evening, so right at 6 o'clock. The energy down on that, um, down by the Western Wall on Shabbat, You can't believe how excited people are that Shabbat is here again. I mean, it really, it's like, I need to bottle some of this up and bring it to church on Sunday because it was infectious. But anyways, here's the Western Wall where you see that mosque. That's where the house of God used to stand. So God's temple in Jesus' day, you'd have gone up onto that temple mount to the temple. And that's where he's interacting with all of the religious authorities and all the people around him that Passover week. And this part of the picture right here is, of course, the Western Wall. That's the most sacred part, or the most sacred spot for Judaism. And that Jesus would have known, not, of course, the mosque, but the Western Wall. Okay, so betrayal and suffering is going to be one aspect. And if I had to add a second aspect, because this is the first thing we're going to cover, is the power of narrative. And narrative, you know, we often have a hard time, what do we do with this story that's sitting in front of us? A good portion of the Bible is narrative. Genesis and Exodus and Joshua and Judges is a narrative, and the Gospels are all narrative. They're just telling the story. And there's so much more going on in that narrative, right? Narrative becomes a tool to carry the deeper meaning that God is going to convey to humanity. And inside that narrative is nested these nuggets of meaning. And we'll talk about the power in that because narrative has power to inspire you, can make you more courageous. It can make you more compassionate. You read a story about someone being compassionate. You want to be compassionate yourself. So there's real power in narrative. And, The problem is, ancient narrative requires us to do some deciphering. So, particularly the very ancient narrative like Judges, you have to do a lot of deciphering of what all the symbolism is. But, anyways, we'll do that. We'll do this today in Matthew. So, the betrayal of Jesus and the crucifixion, it happens in two um, chapters in Matthew, and we're not even going to read out of them tonight. But it starts at the Passover where he's betrayed by Judas. We all know that betrayal. There's a lot more betrayal going on. And then it goes through the end of chapter 27, where he's crucified. And then in chapter 28 is the resurrection. And that's the hope that God will right all the wrongs of this world through the resurrection of the dead. The story's not over, right? This this life isn't the end of it. So you don't want to act as if this life is all there is, because there's more. So I just want to point out, that's where all of this text comes from, but we're going to talk more generally about it. So where I'm going to start off of Matthew, but we're going to start in 1 Peter. So if you want to turn in your Bible, because it's an important little text to read, as Peter is even doing a little bit of explaining of what's going on in this. In, well, he might not be pointing right at Matthew 26 and 27, but the story of betrayal and suffering that Jesus goes through. So 1 Peter 2, 19 to
1: 23, and 1 Peter generally is about suffering.
0: And this is going to be a little explanation by Peter. So sometimes when reading narrative, we want to go somewhere else to see what someone else is explaining about the narrative to help us. So we're going to find an explanation of these events. And then he's going to give us a little bit of a lesson on that we have to apply it to our own lives. So, starting at verse 19. So, verse 19, Peter says, For it's commendable if someone bears up under unjust suffering, because they're conscious of God. So, that's commendable. You're aware of God, there's unjust suffering, and you bear up under that. That's commendable act. He compares this, well, verse 20, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it, right? If you deserve it, well, there's no credit there because you did wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable to God or commendable before God. So he's talking about unjust suffering. You didn't do it, but you took a penalty anyways. or. Suffering for doing good. I'm sure many of you have at some point in your life suffered because you did good. You know, in, a, in an empire of lies, telling the truth is treason. And so you think you're doing the right thing by telling the truth, and the next thing you know, everyone turns on you. No good deed goes unpunished, right? And unjust suffering and suffering for doing good is, of course, commendable before God. So, let's go on to the next verse, and here's where the real, the punch is. To this you were called. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute, right? I wanted to go to, I I wanted to accept Jesus as my Savior to go to heaven, right? Not unjust suffering. What do you mean, to this I was called? Well, why? Because Christ suffered for you, and he's leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And that's the key. As we're going to read this text tonight, we want to read it as though Jesus is showing us what we, sh- how we should be responding to unjust suffering or in the face of a betrayal. He's leaving us an example. Now, And all of us know, throughout the, the history of the church, especially the early church, how many Christians were unjustly persecuted, and they stood strong. They didn't waver. Jesus was their example to follow, and that can change the world, even though you think, wait a minute, but I'm suffering and I might die. So, okay, to this we were called. Christ suffered for you. He left an example. Verse 22, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Peter's quoting Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of Isaiah. We'll bring that up in uh, in a little bit. Then he says this. When they hurled insults at him, what did Jesus do? How did he respond? He did not retaliate. Hmm. There's the example. When he suffered, he made no threats. How hard would that be today? If someone's persecuting you unjustly, not to make threats of retaliation, right? Then he finishes. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, that's God, who judges justly. So how is Jesus able to stand there while everyone's losing their humanity around him? He doesn't lose his humanity. Why? Cuz he has faith in God to follow the will of God and that God is ultimately a just judge. And that this behavior will not this the unjust behavior will be corrected at some point. And of course, 3 days later, he's out of the grave and he's showing us that that's absolutely true. So, we want to look at the story of Matthew as, like Peter calls it, there's an example going on here. And there's many things, many theological truths that come out of this story, but one aspect of it is that we're inspired to do the same thing. That's the that's the power of narrative. it is, it is inspires us. So, betrayal and suffering. And one of the things we notice when you read the text, because narrative... Matthew is choosing which details to show you and which ones not to. So, the gospel shows you all the ways that Jesus reacts by not saying anything. Why put those in there? Well, because it's using it as an example, right? They include the part about Jesus trusting the will of God, right, in the garden, or I'm sorry, at the Gethsemane the night before. Father, take this cup from me, but if not, it's your will, I'll follow your will. That's an example for us to follow God's will. This type of reading, as we read the narrative, we can be inspired that in the face of our own betrayal or unjust suffering, that we would be just like Jesus, walk as Jesus walked. In fact, uh, the the civil rights movement, right, was a nonviolent movement because that was what Jesus did you know one side responds in violence the other side responds in forgiveness and that will change the world for the better and it did so it's very powerful this is let's see point number 1 i believe we're going to talk a little bit about the power of narrative right so this in this all this data on jesus comes to us in the form of a story and you know the narrative they never explain it explicitly. Matthew doesn't say, okay, here's exactly what's going on, and here's the message you ought to get. It's like, no, 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 it's woven into the storytelling, so we have to do some work. It's amazing when you start looking into this narrative, how, uh, it, or the power of narrative, how it can change us. So, for instance, uh, narrative. We have these words on the book in front of us, and they create a story. So you could just read it as a story. Or we could, folk, we could look at it as narrative and search for the meaning inside the narrative. So what happens is, you have all the story on the page, and all of the meaning is kind of layered underneath of it. And the more time you spend with the text, the more details you recognize, the more it works inside of you, the more the meaning begins to emerge. It's like it comes up to the surface. And this is really powerful because um, one of the things that God's doing with narrative is he's causing you to partner with him and the text. So you begin to read the text. You take it in, and it forms you internally in formation. It forms you internally because as you digest the narrative meaning, something begins to emerge out of you and it can transform you. And that's the real power of narrative because it's inner, it's acting inside of you at a a subconscious level. We don't even know it's happening. There's even at the Ohio state university, they even have a, uh, a department that's the project or the narrative project or the project narrative, something like that. And they're studying the psychological power of narrative. And of course they use the Bible as well to say, look, this narrative inspires people to do all kinds of act, act in ways that are much better for their lives that they wouldn't have otherwise. So there's real power in doing that. I was going to tell you guys. So one, one time where this really was very powerful happened to me. I was, one of my classes was to translate Genesis one or Genesis one through four, translate the Hebrew uh, into English. And then I had to write a couple research papers. And when I got to the part on Cain and Abel, I was actually, I was doing a, um, the research paper was on the emotion of shame and the psychological responses to shame in the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel is only 16 verses long, but every time I read it, more stuff would just leap out at me. And it was like, I kept having to go back and revise my paper. And eventually I just ran out of time. Um, because every time I'd go back, I think I can't believe I'm seeing more and more stuff in this 16, 16 verse little story that just keeps pulling out. It it's like a fountain of wisdom that just keeps flowing. But anyways, it's a very powerful thing that happens. The closer we get to the text, the the, the more we familiar we are with the text. Okay, so anyways, Matthew twenty six twenty seven. Betrayal is clearly one of the um. Messages in here, Matthew goes through his entire gospel and then suddenly in chapter twenty six he mentions the word betrayal eight times, like betrayal, 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 betrayal now it's all in the, it's all in in with Judas, but then implicitly you get the action of everybody that follows you get the the high priest's betrayal and the betrayal by the Jewish government and the betrayal by the Roman government and the betrayal by Pilate because he should have stopped it. And there's all kinds of implicit betrayal that follows out of that. Betrayal by the disciples. So betrayal is clearly something that's underlying this. And then, of course, unjust suffering. You know, I want to scream out when I see that they're, that they're accusing Jesus of something he didn't do. Unjust. And then he suffers for it. So that is all over this story and then as the the more you, but it's never said explicitly and the more you read the more it pops up and you see that there's a message going on in here about betrayal and unjust suffering and then the narrative starts to feed the formation of our inner being so part of the reason it's so difficult when we're reading narrative is we have to become very familiar with it that's why reading your bible repetition is helpful because every time you read it, you see something you didn't see before. To go to narrative, you really have to become familiar with the story. You look for themes or repetition, like suddenly the word betrayal showing up eight times. You watch the behavior of the the way they're describing the behavior of the actors, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Watch that behavior, because that's going to help us understand the human condition to what's going on. So that's one way, or one way to think about reading narrative and it obviously helps if you can find someone to take you a little bit deeper or to point out the nuances of this as well. So okay, that's step 1, power of narrative. We're going to look for the message in the narrative. And one of the things that comes out of this these two chapters is what I'm going to call it
1: archetypal suffering. It's the archetypal suffering. Archetypal because The picture that it's
0: painting contains all the essential characteristics of suffering, and it makes the story impossible to go beyond it. You can't find another example of it. It's like the Bible is building with unjust suffering, and the pinnacle is this event right here. So that becomes the archetype for suffering. So if we look at why, why does that mean archetypal? Well, you can't go beyond it. You have somebody who's in Jesus, this is now number two, at the bottom of your page one, Jesus is perfectly innocent. He didn't do anything, yet he's being accused of doing things, right? Now beyond being perfectly innocent, it's it's bigger than that, right? He's sinless. There's no fault. He has no def- defect.
1: He's, uh, I put this, I use the
0: word ideal humanity, and a lot of people don't, Like that. But when when Jesus descended to earth to live here as a human being, he lived as a human being. And he's got a divine nature, but in while he's the human being, he's acting as a human being. But he's the ideal of humanity. He's that's why when we say we're to become Christ alike, it's because he's provides us an example to look at, to move towards. So he didn't do anything wrong. He's perfectly innocent. You can't get any better than someone who's the ideal of humanity. Perfectly, perfectly innocent, sinless person. And then you take that the best and you go down to the bottom and you have the worst of sins, which is betrayal. And he's betrayed
1: on all sides. By everybody.
0: Betrayal is not only the worst sin for human beings to commit, it's the one that's the most difficult for human beings to recover from. Because when you're betrayed, everything you thought you knew gets blown apart. Like, you can have an enemy combatant, but you know they're a combatant. You expect them to come after you and try to, you know, kill you, because that's what you're doing. You're in war, right? They're, they're not betraying you. But if you have someone who's not a combatant come after you, Well, now they're betraying you. That's not what they're supposed to do. It's breaking the expectation. So, Jesus and his disciples, right? What did he expect of his disciples?
1: Expected loyalty.
0: I'll follow you anywhere, Peter says. Ten verses later, he's denying Jesus. So, you know, he couldn't hold it together for the few hours. So, what you get... Again, it's the best—this is why it's archetypal—it encapsulates the best human being and the worst of all the sins, and then, of course, you know, add into that the pain and the suffering of a crucifixion. Um, Crucifixions were invented, or uh, who knows who invented them, but the Phoenicians used them, and the Romans picked them up and perfected them. It's not just an instrument of death. It's torture. It's shame. We depict Jesus because we're modest with a loincloth, but he wouldn't have had anything on. They want to shame you out in public. They put you right on the main road so everybody can see you. And that's saying if you cross Rome, this is what happens to you. And they want to keep you on that cross alive as long as possible. That's why they're surprised when Jesus dies. So this is what makes it archetypal perfect human in Jesus. He's innocent, betrayal, the worst of sins, the worst way of suffering and death, and you just can't go beyond that. So, this story right here in the Bible is really the climax of a biblical theme of betrayal and suffering. We find it from the very beginning of the Bible, and this becomes the climactic one where God Himself is on the cross being betrayed by his own people. So, number three, which is on the back, the idea that there's a biblical theme of betrayal, and it's always the betrayal of the righteous, the person who never didn't do anything, right? So, I'll go over a couple of them here. We always have to go all the way back through the Old Testament, and then where it climaxes here in the New Testament with Jesus. So, you find in the Old Testament there's Betrayal of the Righteous.
1: We'll go over a couple of examples. Another one that's happening here, I believe, is the murder of the ideal. You have the ideal human being. And what do they
0: do? They kill him. And that is a flaw in humanity. That when, we've, when we bump up against the ideal, it makes us feel inadequate, There's a tendency in humanity to murder the ideal. Now, why? Well, because the ideal becomes your judge.
1: There's examples of this in ancient writings. Um,
0: But the ideal becomes the judge. If the ideal comes and stands right next to you, all of your flaws are shown for what they are. And so human beings, this is the uh, in the Cain and Abel story, Cain's shame is coming up, and shame will make you angry over time. So, the ideal shows you everything you're not, and human beings don't respond by saying, Hey, thank you very much for showing me all my deficiencies. I'm so excited to go get to work on them. That's not how human beings respond. Human beings respond in anger. There's shame, there's anger, and that anger can turn into murder. And that's exactly what the Bible shows us from the beginning all the way up until even Jesus. So the ideal is a judge. I'll show you an example of that in a second. So the very first story of the Bible
1: is the story of humanity. Cain and Abel.
0: Where one brother murders another brother because he's just angry at him. He didn't do anything wrong. In fact, by the time the first century comes around, Abel is known as righteous Abel. Even Jesus calls him righteous Abel in Matthew 23, verse 35. He's righteous, Abel. He's the first example of a, of a, a righteous martyr, someone who died for, simply for being righteous. Now, also by the first century, Abel, and I put this on your handout, there's a number of different ancient writings that talk about Abel becoming a judge of humanity. So, one of them, at the bottom of your page two, is, is, a, is a link. To a writing called the Testament of Abraham. And in chapter 13, you can read it. They're looking at this judge on the bench, and it's Abel. And he's going to judge his brother and then judge humanity for their wrongs. Now, that may sound a little bit strange, right? Collectively, in the first century, the idea was Abel's a judge. What do what does Jesus say to the disciples about the 12 tribes of Israel? He says, you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That's an interesting sentence. Paul, <laughs> Paul says about the strangest thing in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 6.3, he says, don't you know that you'll be judging angels? Right? And to this we say, uh, no, Paul, we actually did not know that we would be judging angels. But okay, so there's something about judging um in acts uh 10 verse 42 uh peter says about jesus that god appointed him to be the judge of the living and the dead so the ideal who's the righteous who's uh put to death becomes the judge okay and of course cain there's no reason for cain to to murder him he's upset with god or just with being itself and takes it out on the guy who seems to do no wrong so Cain and Abel that's the first example of betrayal and unjust suffering and murdering the ideal. The second one, the end of Genesis, Joseph. So, Joseph and his brothers, you can read it in Genesis 37. We know the story. Joseph um one idea, why did he have a multicolored coat? A coat of many
1: colors. Well, one thought is is it represents
0: all of your talents. They had a little brother, the last of the brothers, or the second-to-last of the brothers, and he's got all kinds of talents, right? And he's always making his older brothers look bad. Because you can see, as Joseph goes down to Egypt, he's got all kinds of talents that he ends up putting to work, and, you know, pros- and Egypt prospers. So that's one idea, is, you know, if you, have a, if you have a little brother that can do no wrong, knows how to do everything... You get annoyed with them is what you get, and that's exactly what the brothers do. At one point, they say, let's kill him," right? So, they want to murder the ideal, because he's the favored son. That's what you do in humanity. So, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, obviously. He becomes, what we know, a suffering servant. He quietly suffers through all of his time. Right, God then takes this suffering servant and uses him. He's a Messiah-like figure, anointed for a particular task by God, and he uses uh, him to bring Israel back together in the formation of a nation. So, Joseph, a very interesting
1: study, is to look at he's a Messiah-like figure. And the rabbis notice something. They noticed in the Bible that there appeared to be two messiahs. The first one, of course, we know. Messiah, son of David.
0: This is, the, this is the king that's to come. And you know that the Gospels identify Jesus as son of David. He's the coming king. He's the messiah. That's messianic talk for messiah. But they also noticed there's this other figure that keeps showing up. The suffering servant. Ah, that's Messiah, son of Joseph. Because Joseph was a suffering servant who held steadfast to God, obeyed God, and through that, God used him for that special purpose of bringing Israel together. So the question that the rabbis couldn't figure out is, when the Messiah comes, which one is he going to be? Is he Messiah, son of David, or Messiah, son of Joseph? And what's Jesus?
1: Both. He's kind of both, right? He, he
0: comes as the suffering servant. That's how we see him, but they identify him as, as Messiah, son of David. And how's he going to come in the second coming? Is he the suffering servant any longer in the second coming? No, he's coming to judge. So the reason I point this out is that there's much more to Joseph going on than we often are aware of, particularly about the Messiah. But Joseph is another example of somebody who's the ideal, that's betrayed by brothers, that's Jesus. But God uses that for a particular purpose. So you can see these are just two examples in the Bible. You have righteous Abel, that's he's murdered, he's the ideal. You have Joseph, who they go after, he's the ideal. And that leads all the way up to the story of Jesus. So it's like this climactic story of when they're finally killed the ideal. And you can follow that through the Bible. It's a very strong thread that goes through the Bible, much like the prophets. If If you're a prophet who walks up and points out the flaws of the king, watch out. Kings aren't always happy when you point out that they're not doing the right thing. So anyway, so I wanted to show you, there's a biblical theme of Betrayal, suffering, murdering the ideal, and it culminates in uh, these two chapters of Matthew. So, okay,
1: let's, um, let me talk just briefly about betrayal. It's just a note because it helps us understand exactly why this is so devastating. So, one, on one hand, for a
0: human being to betray another human being is the worst of sins, right? We, last week, we talked about to love your neighbor as yourself is how you show love to God. So if you betray your neighbor, who else are you betraying? Well, God, because you're being tra- betraying the one who's in the image of God. So it's the worst of all sins. And, by the way, betrayal is the hardest for people to bounce back from. It's devastating. To be betrayed by another human being can be a devastating thing. You know, we suffer sicknesses, and we suffer loss, and we suffer natural disasters, and most of those people can reasonably withstand and recover, right? You don't feel betrayed by a tornado. Tornadoes do what tornadoes do. If you swim in the ocean, you don't feel betrayed by a shark, because that's what, you go in the shark's house, that's what a shark does. But when a human being who's not supposed to do that does that, everything gets blown apart. Literally, like, internally, you don't know which way is up. So it's the, it's the worst type of suffering is to be betrayed. Because everything that Jesus thought that would be true leading up to this moment gets blown apart. And let me show you at least one example from history. Obviously, this is just a story. But Dante's Inferno... So, if you read all the levels of hell in Dante's Inferno, this is a a depiction of the ninth level of hell, the lowest. And the lowest level of hell is reserved for those who betray. So, throughout history, as you look at all these sins, that's where betrayal is put, at the very bottom. Satan, he betrays God, so he's at the very bottom of it. And then he puts in there Brutus and Cassius. They were the ones who murdered Julius Caesar and then Judas. That's who uh, Dante puts down at that ninth level of hell. It's all ice. They're stuck in ice. And one of the things, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Satan is stuck down in ice and uh, he keeps resisting. He's flapping his Satan wings. And part of the reason that he can't get out because he's struggling to get out. He's resisting God. Part of the reason he can't get out of the ice is that his wings keep cooling the place off, and they keep him frozen. But if he would release himself to God, at least how the story goes, the ice would melt and he'd be released, but he has to give up to God to do that. So that's just a little bit of what has going on at that bottom level of hell for Dante. Okay, that's how devastating betrayal is, not only the worst of sins, but for the person being betrayed. And then we think of all the ways that Jesus are betrayed in this story. So he's betrayed by the justice system, the Roman justice system. Pilate says he's he's innocent, yet Pilate allows it to happen. He doesn't stop it. So he allows an innocent man to go to his death. He didn't do enough to stop that from happening. You have, of course, he's put to death by the Romans. The Jewish system of justice of that day falsely accused an innocent man. They shouldn't have done that. The religious leaders of all people, they know their Bible. They know what they're supposed to do. I'll show you um, one example from the text in a minute. They ultimately betray one of their brothers. So the religious leaders betray. The disciples betray, Not um, not just Judas, although that's one of them, but even when Peter's denials is a form of betrayal. Even... Jesus and his family right when his family's calling him crazy and they're not you know those are those are betra- the betrayals of what it when it means to be in a family so he's literally betrayed on all sides it's like he's left alone maybe even on the cross you know my God my God why have you forsaken me he feels even God left him alone that's what that's what I mean by it's the worst thing that can possibly happen now part of the example is you have all of this betrayal going on, which is devastating, and then you go back and you say, well, how did Jesus respond to the suf- to the, the betrayal and the unjust suffering? Well, his response, there's no retaliation. He stands there, right? When the people around him are losing their humanity, he maintains his. So there's no retaliation. Forgiveness. He's forgiving all the way up until the point he's on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So even he he wants to forgive these people. He's going to place his trust in God. So all of these things are, we look at his response to what happened, and you say, that's how you should be responding yourself. And one of the last things that I think many of us have thought about is, Maybe we don't have faith of what God can do, the power of God in death. Meaning, you know, Jesus uh, was 33 years old, and many of us think, if he could have just kept going, right? If he had another 50 years of healing people and bringing the kingdom, and, you know, why did he have to die so early? But then we forget, what did God do with his death? He changed the world. He unleashed the Holy Spirit, right? We assume that death is the end of the story, but it's not. What can God do in our death? Maintain your righteousness. And you don't know what God can do in our death in the face of, of course, unjust suffering. And throughout the history of the church, this has happened where people are, the persecutors are so surprised that you would be willing to die for your Lord. Hits them in a in a way hits their
1: humanity in a way that changes them. So there's something
0: very powerful in the way that Jesus, of course, responded. Can we see that? Can we see ourselves? Can we be inspired ourselves that in the face of an unjust uh, punishment or a betrayal that we would be able to respond the same way with forgiveness and no retaliation? So. That's where we get this very powerful narrative example that then seeps into our own being and inspires us to respond the same way. Now, I didn't put this on your sheet, but I want to show you something, because if he knows this text, and I know Jesus does, this is, uh, it's not on your sheet, but if you write this down, Proverbs 24, 11 to 12, because not only would Jesus know this text, but the religious leaders would know it as well. And this is a text talking about putting the innocent to death. Go back and read it at some point when you get a chance. But Proverbs 24, 11 to 12, verse 11 says, rescue those being led away to death. Now, the, the context of that is unjustly. There's an innocent person being led away to death. Your responsibility is to rescue them from those who are being led away to death unjustly. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. And then it gets good. If you say, but
1: we knew nothing about this, won't or doesn't he
0: who weighs the heart perceive it that you did? Oh, yeah. You can't stand by and say, oh, we didn't know that he was an innocent person. God will go, really? Let me weigh your heart and see the truth. So, he who weighs the heart will perceive it. Does not he who guards your life know it? Doesn't God know it? Of course he does. And will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? This is what Jesus is standing on. This is how he can know that he can place his trust in God. Because God's going to hold everyone accountable for what they've done. He's the one who judges justly. And so, Jesus has faith. God can do that. Anyways, great verse because this is exactly what's happening. They're allowing the innocent man to be taken and put to death, and the Bible says, God says in Proverbs, "Do not do that, because I'll find you out." So, okay, that's betrayal and suffering. It's that's what Matthew twenty-six and twenty-seven. Now, there's obviously there's all kinds of amazing theological truths in that. Jesus is the Lamb and the blood that that we're covered with, delivers us from our sins, and Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, and it's not to diminish that. But in this, nested in this, is also Jesus an example for us. And you know, we tend to focus our anger on Judas as the only betrayer, but then you look and you say, no, 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 he's being betrayed by everybody in that line. Jesus or Judas is just the first one. There's betrayal all over the place. So that's what I mean, that emerges that archetypal picture of the worst suffering at the hands of those who would betray, and Jesus being the sinless human being who did nothing wrong. So, one more time, I'm just going to read the verse from Peter again. This is what Peter says. To this you were called, right, to stand in the face of unjust uh, injustice or betrayal, and even endure suffering. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, there's the idea of it being an example, that you should follow in his steps. Sometimes we forget we're following a rabbi who suffered and died, and if we're supposed to be like our rabbi, then what's what's in it for us? Well, it doesn't mean everyone's going to suffer and die that way, but the prospect may be there. So, the power of narrative, stories, we take them in, they, they transform us internally as we begin to see the nuances of the story. Uh, within the entire Bible, you see the human frailty for betrayal, the, the murder of the ideal. You, you see it all over the place today, as people see somebody who's an ideal at something, and the, everyone comes out with daggers for them. So there's the human frailty. We also though have choice in our response, right? Jesus has the choice to not retaliate and the choice to not make threats. And he wants us to do the same thing. And why can he do that? Because we have the faith in God is going to judge everybody justly. So, okay, hopefully that adds at least another angle or element to that story that we know so well, um the the betrayal and suffering of of Jesus, but I want to look, look at it a little bit differently. Every time we can take a little bit different angle and look very intently from that angle, you'll always see something that you didn't see before. So that's week 10 of Matthew. And um, next week, as I said, we'll start on the book. We'll do two weeks on the book of Judges just to show you this downward spiral that, that Israel is stuck in, this cycle that leads them into utter chaos and then how that information is communicated culturally. We hope you enjoyed this lesson on betrayal and unjust suffering. And we pray that it serves an example to inspire you to walk as Jesus walked in this fallen world. If you found this teaching valuable, we ask that you would consider making a financial donation to support Fig Tree Ministries our operations rely entirely on the generous donations of our supporters. So your financial support directly impacts our ability to continue to expand our reach and help others just like you go deeper into the biblical text. The clearer we understand the scripture, the deeper we can go, the more solid the foundations of our faith become. So we've included a a donation link below in the description section, and that'll take you directly to our donation page. So as you go out into the world, may the words of number six place the name of the Lord upon you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his shalom.